Does anybody here uh, think that they're supposed to do the opening prayer? Does anybody here have the prayer list to share with the group? Okay, well, we'll have to wait a week for the prayer list. Um, I think I can give you at least one prayer request, but I do know that a group from our church that includes Ron uh, are on their way to Indonesia, if not, I think it's Thursday, um, right after Valentine's Day. Uh, what a wonderful Valentine's Day gift for your wife just to leave her alone. So, uh, <laughs> for two weeks. Um, so we can keep Ron in your prayers and uh, the group that's going. I know Mitchell's going, and I believe that um, Ben McCaleb is going. So I believe, and a guy named Peacock. Do you know Tom Peacock or Richard Peacock? In, in Houston, there's a Tom Peacock Chevrolet, so I think I've got it. What? Richard Peacock. <laughs> okay, so let's pray and then we'll get started. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this class, for this time we have together. We thank you, Lord, for your word that you've given us, that we might, through it, grow closer to you and perhaps even be transformed into your image in some small way. Now, we pray for our class today that you would be with us uh, and open our hearts and minds to your word. And we do remember those members of our class who are sick today and can't be with us, especially Tom and Lisa Benke. We ask that you would be with them, and, and Lord, it's always a little bit scary when a person over 70 gets COVID, and so we pray that you would hasten their recovery and give their doctors wisdom about the treatment. Now, we also pray for those uh, in our midst that will be traveling to Indonesia. Lord, that's a 34-hour trip in the air, uh, and so uh, I know... Uh, Old hips do not like that trip very much. And so we pray that you would be with them, especially with Ron, who's had hip surgery, uh, that he'd be able to take the, the flight and not just be uncomfortable for most of the way. Uh, once again, uh, bless each member of this class and their loved ones. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Amen. So you can hear me okay? Um, someone, by the way, let's be sure. Yes. Someone who's got their Bible open. Uh, might want to take us to Daniel 4, and in just a minute, I'm going to have you read. Um, so I thought last week Tom did a very good job of giving us some pegs to put our understanding of Daniel around. And so I've put them up on the screen, and I'll repeat them, repeat them for you, because I do think, as will become evident during this class, that keeping in mind why Daniel was written in the form we have it and what the main point is helps us understand the details. So we'll, we'll, it helps us understand the details to get clear in our mind the main points and the main thrust, which you will see in just a minute. First of all, the purity of God's servants. Daniel 1 starts out with the fact that Daniel did not allow himself to be uh, impure and to give up his Jewish beliefs, though he lived in a pagan land. And that is of eternal importance, and it's of importance to us today because we also live in a pagan land. Uh, so we, like Daniel, have to find ways to live in purity and in faithfulness to Christ even though the culture around us uh, does not uh, reflect it. And I, I might add, I, I think that we sometimes think this is something that's happened uh, since our children grew up, which would be a slander on our children and also false. You know, last night, Kathy and I, um, I don't know if you a little commercial, uh, the BBC and BritBox has published a, a, a movie called Archie. It's the story of Cary Grant. Uh, if you don't haven't watched it, it's really worth it because he was a broken person, and the movie shows you why and uh, what was going on in his life. Well, last night we had the opportunity to uh, watch the movie Indiscreet. I don't know if you remember that movie, but it uh, was a famous movie that he starred in. It's about a man and a woman who are having an affair out of wedlock, and she knows very well that he's married, although he's really not. Uh, and that's the cute twist in the movie. 
the decline of morals in our culture didn't start with the sexual revolution in the 1960s, although it's often blamed for that. It didn't start uh, when the Beatles started dancing on stage. Um, it started a long, long time ago. Probably, it's, people have been immoral forever, uh, but, uh, but as materialism captured our world, uh, the fact is uh, a lack of interest in morals captured our world. Secondly, the courage of our convictions. The courage to maintain our faith even though most people around us don't agree and don't accept it. Uh, now, courage doesn't translate to being in your face all the time. <laughs> uh, courage is the ability to maintain our convictions and to act on them in the best way we can under pressure. Some of you remember Ernest Hemingway's famous statement that courage is grace under pressure. And our courage is the ability to maintain what we believe even though there are forces around us that are trying to keep us from maintaining our beliefs. Constancy of prayer. Constancy of prayer. If you all remember where we left off with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's last word was, we are entering a time when all the church will be able to do is pray and do good works. Well, I'm not sure he's right about that, as you know, but the fact is, to be constant in prayer, daily in prayer, maybe more than daily in prayer, I try to be more than daily in prayer, I'm not very successful, uh, but to try to be constant in prayer so that the power of God is reflected in what we do, and we're going to see that in today's lesson. Uh, and finally, faith and trust in the God Most High. Last week we had uh, the, the flaming furnace, and the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were faithful and constant in their faith, even though they were under great pressure. Well, uh, one, we're going to go back to the first week now for just a minute, or second week, I can't remember which. Um, but I think it's good to keep in our mind that the Babylonian Empire was the greatest empire that had been known to the human race up to its time. Uh, that green area that you see on the screen shows you the extent of what it was Nebuchadnezzar actually controlled. Uh, it's an empire that stretched all the way from the border of India, Iran, uh, all, well, all the way to the Persian Gulf, pardon me, uh, all the way down into Egypt. So it was a very, very great empire. And um, I don't know if any of you have been successful in business or build a business, but we're all proud, aren't we, of those things we Great, and achieve. So what would you suspect that Nebuchadnezzar would feel about this empire that he had conquered? Proud. He would be proud of his achievements and the achievement of his father who had a part to play in this. Um, so as he contemplated the future. Now, with that, someone who has a good voice, a good Bible, and can walk, the, or I, I'll, I'll bring it to you, by the way. Um, would you read Daniel chapter 4, or until I tell you to stop? Um, all the way down to where he has the dream with the golden statue. Okay. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. Stop there. Keep going. Keep, stop right there. Okay. Stop right there. So okay. I, I, had, I really went a little bit ahead of myself here. I want to also go back to Ellen's lesson and talk about the statue, okay? I want to talk about the statue for a minute because we had a statue in another week, and we've got a statue this week, this week, uh, pardon me, last week, and now this week we've got a tree. And I want to kind of connect them a little bit for you because it's one story. Even though we tend to read the stories of Daniel in separate chunks, it's one story with one point. 
Remember that there is a statue that has gold, silver, brass, and iron. And remember that Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that he's the gold. Okay, this is a question for the ladies. Given your choice between a ring made by your husband on a lathe with wood and a ring of gold, which do we choose? Gold. And why do we choose gold? It's, it's the most valuable element. I don't do it anymore, but back in one day of my life, I used to trace the value of various precious metals. Gold was always more precious than silver. Silver was always more precious than iron. Uh, it's always more precious. Gold is the most rare and the most precious of all metals. And it signifies value. Gold signifies value. Why do people buy gold and sell dollars? To maintain value. To maintain value, okay? And Daniel has already proclaimed that Babylon is the greatest of the ancient empires. Now, I thought I would stop here and give you a little word about what's different from the way they thought and the way we think, okay? What do we think, where do we think the greatest future is? Well, in the future, we think, we tell every generation, you're the best, you're the best, you're going to do the best. We tell the voters, if you elect me, I'll bring in the millennium. The best is in front of us. How did the ancients think? There was a golden age, and that age is not the present, but the past. Now think about that statue. As far as Daniel and the writers of Daniel were concerned, Nebuchadnezzar is the best. And the future is not going to be better and better as technology and science overcomes problems. The future is going to be worse and worse and more and more unstable. So their mindset is the, the past is where we go to find perfection. Our vision is the future is where we go to find perfection. It's a difference in the way we think. But Babylon has been proclaimed to be the greatest, pardon me, of the world empires. Now, this is where I want to make a point. Uh, you'll see a little statue there. That's a statue of Zeus. It's got a lot of gold on it. Uh, in about the year 164, the Greek emperor of Syria that controlled Israel uh, put a statue of Zeus made of gold in the temple in Jerusalem. And that provoked a revolt uh, because that was the desolation of the purity of the temple of the living God. Okay? And Scholars believe that this book was written at, or put in its form, the current form, when Antiochus Epiphany did that and the Jews had to live under his oppression and revolted from him, okay? And therefore, this is also a book about what happens if we enforce pagan worship. What did we talk about last week? Nebuchadnezzar's trying to enforce pagan worship. He's trying to enforce pagan worship. And that's a desolation of God, okay? Um, now, I just wanted to put that out there as we go through this, because now we're going to get to the dream of an unstable king. Okay? You've already read the dream of the unstable king, but as the story opens, Nebuchadnezzar is in his palace in Babylon, which was the most beautiful of all the cities of the world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The palace of, 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 of Nebuchadnezzar was the most opulent of all palaces in the world of his time. Uh, he is living in luxury. He's living in success. He's living in power. He's living in control of his destiny and of the destiny of millions of people. And he has a dream. And just so that we can talk about the dream, but first we'll get to the messengers. So this is important. This is important. And I count it. It occurs many times in this verse. God says 
sends a messenger. The word for messenger in Greek is angelos, or angel. He sends a messenger, and the God that sends the messenger is the God Most High. Now, let's stop for a moment. Um, Israel thought, before they went into captivity in Babylon, that Yahweh was something like their God. Their God, everybody had a God, but their God was the most powerful God, okay? And their God would protect them. In Babylon, in captivity, interestingly enough, when they've been defeated and their God did not defeat them, they developed the notion that their God was not just any old God, He was the God Most High. That God that controlled all of human history, that controlled all of the destiny of the nations, that controlled the future, that God was their God whom they called the Lord. Okay? And so right at the beginning, not any old God is sending this, these messengers, but the God that rules over all gods. Now, we have a tendency, we don't have a tendency, we do think there's one God. The Jews actually didn't think necessarily there was just one God. But their God was the most powerful God, and the other gods were nothing more than demons. By the New Testament, uh, Paul is of the conviction that these other gods may exist, but they're demonic. There's only one God. Their God is the God of Israel. That God is the one and only God. And there are no other real gods. Everyone else is a false god. That's... Uh, an insight that the Jews develop over almost a thousand years. But they will ultimately believe there's only one God, it's their God, the God Most High. There's nothing above that God, nothing more powerful than that God, nothing more holy than that God, nothing more pure than that God, nothing better than that God. That God is the greatest God of all gods. So that word holy means utterly pure utterly without sin, utterly without impurity, like gold of the purest kind, uh, unlike anything on earth. Now, this is another thing we take for granted, but in the ancient world, they didn't take it for granted. The Greek gods were basically forces of nature that they'd put human bodies on and then deified. Uh, so there was a god of the sea, and a god of death, and a god of the heavens, and a god of lightning, and a god of this, and a god of that. Um, but their God, the God of Israel, is not like anything else on earth. It's unlike anything else on earth, completely pure. Now, I want to say we sometimes actually fall into the habit of believing that God is not completely pure. That is, we want a God that blesses, let's say, America. We want a God that blesses, let's say, hard work. We want a God who blesses, let's say, marriages, Christian marriages, and doesn't bless other marriages. Um, and when we do that, we fail to worship the God that is unlike anything else. When Moses sees him on the mountain, here's what he says. I am what I am. I will be what I will be. And you can't outthink me. This God is what that God is. It is not responsible to comply with our ideas of what God should be like. This is, I think, the hardest thing for me to accept, that God doesn't necessarily do what I think he ought to do. He doesn't necessarily agree with my views about what the future should be like. He is what he is and does what he does, and it's our job to follow him, not his job to follow us. That's the messengers that come to see, and I thought we should stop and talk about that for a little bit, because... It's important because that statue I showed you of Zeus, you see, the ancient world was full of gods. And to maintain the purity of Jewish religion, they had to know that their God wasn't just any old God. They had to know he was the God most high. Okay. Now, let's read the next part of it. What happens next? Six and seven, I think it is. And I'm reading from the new RSV. 
So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me in order that they might tell me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the encanters, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not tell me its interpretation. Let me continue. Is that the end of seven? That's I think that's the end of seven. Okay. So I thought we should stop there and uh, talk a little bit about a subject we also have talked about before, but we need to get clear in our mind. As you remember, uh, in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, <coughs> and in the court of virtually any ancient king, uh, there were magicians, or magi, or wise men, that is, those who could read the stars and interpret the future for the king. How many of us remember uh, Ronald Reagan's wife going to visit oh, yes. <laughs> the medium? Um, it is the temptation of all of us to want to know the future, isn't it? And of course, one would think kings might have a special interest in understanding the future. Now, don't you think that Joe Biden this morning would like to know how the election is going to turn out in November? Don't you think he'd like to know how the war in the Middle East is going to turn out? Don't you think he'd like to know uh, how the Ukraine is going to turn out? The temptation to use magic of some kind uh, is, uh, is endemic to leadership. Now, we don't always call our magicians anymore magi. We call them economists. We call them military experts. Uh, we call them by different names, but they're very wise people who know so much more than we do and are able to interpret for us the future. And we all of us have a tendency to uh, think about that. And well, this is what was common in the ancient world. And I think what this text wants to tell us, first of all, and we've been told it before and need to hear it again, is that magic doesn't work. Enchantments don't work. Astrology doesn't work. And divination doesn't work. The Bible speaks against this. I have children that are involved in astrology, and I have friends who have children that are involved in astrology and what have you. Uh, it's dangerous. It's dangerous if you're a pagan, and it's dangerous if you're a Christian. Uh, many years ago, I, I, don't even, I don't read the newspaper anymore. It makes me sick. But um, the fact is, I used to read the newspaper, and on the comic pages, they always had the astrology chart. You all remember that? Well, I read the comics, and therefore my eyes would be drawn toward the astrology chart. And, of course, there's a temptation to see just how Capricorns are going to fare today before you go to the office. <laughs> Lawyers also would like to know the future. How is this deal going to turn out? How is this case going to turn out? Uh, and I finally disciplined myself to stop looking at that bar on the chart. We need to remember that there is nothing that substitutes for trust in God and faith. Nothing substitutes for trust in God and faith. Not magic, not divination, not the stars, nothing, not even the Wall Street Journal, can substitute for the living God who actually does control history, who actually does control history, who actually is in charge of what happens next, and who we actually can't outsmart. You would think by now the human race would have figured that out, but it's endemic that we don't think that's necessary. But the fact is, if we could have predicted the Great Depression, and plenty of people tried, we would have outsmarted God and gotten out of it. If we could have uh, foreseen the rise of Hitler and what would happen, we would, have out, we would have been stronger and outsmarted it and prevented it from happening. But we can't. We have to live where we are in faith where we are. That's what we have to do. And we can't know the future by any other means. We might get some good guesses, and by the way, that I don't want to say I don't. I do study economics, and I do study the Wall Street Journal. Okay, now, here we get to the contents of the dream. Okay, um, I think I'm not going to have us read it, but here's the dream. The dream is very important. There's this great tree, and on this great tree there are birds and there are fruits. All the nations of the earth are on this great tree. And in this great tree is suddenly broken and it falls down and all that is left is a stump. Okay? 
Now, I, want, I won't go back to the slide, but remember there was once a great statue. And at the bottom of the statue, a little teeny tiny rock, not made by human hands, hits that statue and it falls. Okay? In other words, a first message is that the kings of this earth, as strong as they may seem, are not invincible. And that the living God is capable of taking them down. Okay? Now, um, you'll, when we get to the end, you're going to see that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, pride is the beginning of folly. Um, you see, great trees think they're invincible but they're not, okay? Because when the dream is over, there's nothing left but a stump. Now, will somebody read 22 to 27? Four, 22 to 27. 22 to what? 27. 27. Okay. It is thou, O king, that art grown and become strong. For thy greatness is grown and reacheth unto heaven, and thy dominion to the end of the earth. And whereas the king saw a watcher and an holy one coming down from heaven and saying, Hew the tree down and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with the band of iron and brass, in the tender of grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and give it to whomsoever he will. And whereas, thy commanded, whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee. After that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. Okay, thank you. Now, remember I took some time to talk about the messengers, and I took some time to talk about the Most High. And the reason I did that is because this is where the rubber meets the road. The messengers of God have now given a message. And the message is that the tree of Babylon, the tree of Nebuchadnezzar, is going to be felled. Uh, who's going to do that? It's not going to be the Assyrians. He's not talking about the Persians. He's not talking about the Iranians or the Indians or the Greeks. The Most High God is going to do this. Okay? So whatever human element there is involved, well, he probably had some form of madness. Whatever human element is involved in this, the fact is the Most High God is going to be, is the actor here. That's who's going to take down the tree, okay? And so I wanted to stop with that. I wanted to start with that. And then I wanted to sort of give you some of what I think are the, some points to remember. First of all, in case we didn't remember, Nebuchadnezzar ruled for almost 60 years, 50-some years, uh, he is the tree. He's the tree. The greatest king of the ancient world at the time. Nebuchadnezzar, however, just like us, is a sinner. Okay? Now, I, I want to say, here's another thing I think um, we fall into periodically. It's easy to look at a great sinner or a great person who happens to be a sinner um, I'll pick a, a, a far former, we can look at a president like Clinton and say, oh, there's a great sinner. Um, forgetting that in the same place we might be just as great a sinner. There's a delusion that if I were in power, I wouldn't be seduced by power. I would be something else. 
But the truth is this, we are all sinners, and whoever we manage to get to power will still be a sinner, and all that power does is magnify your capacity to be a sinner. Having a lot of money is a dual curse. You can do a lot of things, but guess what? It magnifies your power to be a sinner. You can be completely self-absorbed. Uh, so Nebuchadnezzar is still a sinner, and, and I think this gets to be most important in understanding the dream, he is still filled with pride. He's filled with pride, okay? So I'd like to talk a little bit about our country, since what, who, what country is the most powerful country in the world? What country has a navy that is everywhere there is? They have projected their power. Is it the Ukrainian navy? <laughs> Is it the Gazan Navy? Is it the South African Navy? No, it's the U.S. Navy. <laughs> it's the U.S. Navy. So the nation that needs to hear this, quite frankly, is not Liechtenstein or Switzerland. It's us. We need to hear this because we are the tree. We're the tree, not someone else. Nebuchadnezzar needs to learn that he is not greater than God. Now, we have on every coin, one fell out of my pocket today and I put it back in maybe, but on our uh, coin we have these words, in God we trust. But as I look at our politics, I really think it's in the defense industry that we trust. Or it's in the Federal Reserve Board that we trust. Uh, or it's in some other agency that we trust. Or, or we fight over who's going to be president. Presidents don't really have as much power as we think they have. Uh, we think in, in Joe Biden or Donald Trump, I trust. Uh, but that's a mistake because the only person ready, will, we really should trust is God. That's the only person who is truly trustworthy. Christ is the one who is faithful and true and not any human ruler. If Nebuchadnezzar does not repent and rule justly, he will be punished. Now, once again, I, I do think it's really nice to look at this either from the past, this happened to Nebuchadnezzar, or the future, this is going to happen to the Antichrist, and forget that it could happen to us. But really, the value of Scripture is not in what happened in the past, and it's not in understanding what's going to happen in the future. It's in how do we behave today. It's in what lesson can we draw today for our daily lives, and the message to us is, if we don't repent, we're going to get punished. You know, there's a proverb that I, I, I think I've already told you, I read a chapter of Proverbs every day, but there's a, a, a chapter of Proverbs that when I was in debt as a young lawyer, and actually had borrowed a little too much money for my income um, in business, um, I read this proverb that says, the borrower is the servant of the lender. Uh, now, that applied to Chris Scruggs, and by the way, he did manage to get out of debt, and the borrower was no longer the servant of the lender. Uh, it also applies to a government that borrows too much money, <laughs> more than its entire na gross national product, apparently, right now. Uh, it applies to everyone. See, foolishness does not only apply to those who accidentally get caught in their foolishness, or those who aren't smart enough, powerful enough, or rich enough to overcome their foolishness. Uh, foolishness brings destruction upon anybody who is foolish. And God is not a respecter of persons. He actually doesn't love the United States of America and us more than he loves Hamas. That's hard for me to get my mind around, quite frankly. But it's true. God loves everyone indiscriminately. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? God loves that worst sinner we can imagine just as much as God loves us. And in today's text, for us, that means we need to repent as bad as anyone we think is a great sinner needs to repent. And the punishment that Nebuchadnezzar will suffer is the loss of his greatness. So let's talk about that right there. What would a king fear the most? The loss of the kingdom not being the king. Now, we have our own little kingdoms, right? You know, we, it, for us it might be our children. 
or it might be our job, or it might be our church. It could be a lot of things for each one of us, but our punishment for our sin is the loss of whatever we think is our greatness. That's a rule of sort of life. And it's one that we should apply to ourselves. Okay, so how are we doing on time? By the way, this is a long lesson, and so I'm fearful. Um, all right, so um, now I'm going to introduce you to a little question of history, just so that you can understand a question of history. Uh, in the ancient records that we have, we don't really have a record of Nebuchadnezzar uh, being gone for seven years. I will tell you that I've read lots of books on this, and there are certain uh, historical scholars who believe it was Nebuchadnezzar. It was, it, this is about Nebuchadnezzar. But there was another king, Nabonidus, who was the last king of Babylon. When we get to the point where the kingdom falls, Nabonidus is the king where the, it falls. And he ruled from 556 until the conquest of Cyrus in 539. And he was thought to be mad. And he did leave the throne and live in some other place. I think it's called Taima uh, in an oasis until he was finally healed by a Jew. Hmm. Uh, about seven years. Um, now, I'm going to stop and say, this is where I like to say something about biblical interpretation. Because Christians get all caught up in what it means for the Bible to be infallible. The Bible is infallible as to all matters of faith and works. That is, it doesn't lie to us about morality, and it doesn't lie to us about who God is. That's the Westminster Confession of Faith. It is not necessary for us to think that nobody ever made a mistake in writing Scripture. Because the testimony, as far as we're concerned, is to Christ. That's who he's talking about. Okay? That's what it talks about. So, when scholars confuse us, my advice to you is just remember Jesus is Lord. <laughs> okay? Just remember Jesus is Lord. Um, we'll find out in heaven. Now, here's what might be important, though. We are told that one day, a few months later, Nebuchadnezzar was standing on his balcony. I don't know if any of you like to stand on balconies, but I really like to stand on balconies. I used to have an office in Houston that was on the 22nd floor of an office building. It was right at the edge of downtown, and I could look east across Allen Parkway. I could look at the big office buildings, and I could think, I am the greatest lawyer in the world. <laughs> Here I am in this great office, looking over my future empire. Well, that's what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. He was standing there at his palace. He's looking across the vision. He's looking at those hanging gardens. He's looking at the temples. He's looking at the businesses. He's looking beyond the walls of the city to the sandy desert, and he's thinking, it's all mine. I did this by my own strength, by my own wisdom, by my military power and might and shrewdness, I did this, I got myself a great kingdom. And what happens? Remember, he hears a voice from heaven. And he's told now the judgment that we warned you about is going to come upon you. And so we're told that he loses his mind and he becomes like a beast. There are many pictures of this, but. This one appears in lots of my, in my textbooks it appeared in. Um, this is sort of, there he is. He's gone from standing on this balcony, dressed in robes of purple, uh, with all of his kingdom around him, and all of his servants around him, and all the luxury around him, to being a naked guy, like a beast, out in the desert, crawling among the beasts. That's where he ends up. So I thought I would stop to the New Testament, because the New Testament gives us the same lesson. In Romans, Paul writes... For though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and in their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. That's what happened to him, you see. He exchanged his proper place in God's kingdom, which was a pretty nice place to be. And in doing so, he got filled with pride. And God judged him for that pride. 
because it's pride that God hates most of all. The sin of Satan is what? Pride. <laughs> now, it's, I'm, I'm not, a, uh, I'm not a, a conventional sinner. I really never was. A con I was a small conventional sinner. But I tell people, I never really liked beer. So drunkenness just never really appealed to me. Beer makes me sick before it makes me drunk. Uh, wine doesn't do that, but... Um, <laughs> and although I, I liked girls just as much as any other guy, I really didn't really think promiscuity was that cool. But pride, now there's something you can get into. Success, there's something you can really get into. Now we all have our sins. And those of us who don't have what they call the hot sins, like lust, need to remember those aren't the worst sins. Because the worst sin is the coldness of pride, of wanting to be the ruler of the universe. There's the worst sin. And that's one that I do have. Um, so, um, at the end of the day is what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. Where are we? I can't see. Okay, we got some. What happens? After seven years of wandering in the wilderness with his mind gone, uh, what happens to him? His mind comes back. And what causes his mind to come back? He repents. He repents. And when he repents, his mind is restored, and the kingdom is then restored to him. Now, <clears throat> once again, I told you I wasn't a hot sinner, but a sinner I am. And I managed to get myself in lots of trouble uh, through that. Um, and guess what? It wasn't until I repented and said, you know, my problem isn't Kathy. My problem isn't my parents. My problem isn't my friends who led me astray or my partners in business that didn't treat me right. My problem is me. <laughs> my problem is me. And whether you're the king of Babylon or whether you're just a member of the Bridges class in San Antonio, Texas, uh, that's the moment of great healing. The moment of great healing, the beginning of our ability to be authentic is when we come to ourselves and we recognize that the problem is me. I am the source of all of my problems. <laughs> uh, and, and, and as a counselor, I'll, I'll think about this because the, the person is someone I, I really like. I, I had a parishioner once who had truly a terrible parent. A, a terrible mother, truly terrible. There were men inside the house all the time. And um, she was abused by some of them, and you know, sh she herself uh, did bad things. None of that really, she went to counseling, but none of understanding all the bad that had happened to her cured her. It was when the moment she realized that she had actually used her sexuality to get what she wanted. At that moment, her healing began. Because at that moment, what other people had done to her became irrelevant, and she could deal with that. <laughs> and she began to deal with herself. By the way, she's a very happily married mother of six today. Um, so um, it's, it's important for us to realize that our healing begins with self-recognition, just like Nebuchadnezzar. We're not the king of Babylon. Uh, but our healing begins when we deal with ourselves. And you know, history tells us Moses was the most humble of people. I think the way Moses got humble is the day out there in the desert when he said, you know, I'm a murderer. <laughs> uh, I am not a great guy. And I'm just going to try to follow God from now on. I think that's the moment where he began to become the humblest of men. And for Christians, this is kind of important because I'm very judgmental. I had my quiet time this morning. It was all about being judgmental, and I was recognizing I'm judgmental. Um, to be humble is not to judge others. It's not to be judgmental about others, but to love others. Proverbs 11 says that a man will be blessed if he saves those who are straying. It, does, it doesn't say that we'll be blessed if we condemn those who are straying 
or judge those who are straying. It says in verse 30, if you're looking it up, Garland, back there, uh, that we'll be blessed if we save souls. And so we are liberated from ourselves, not to be judgmental, but to recognize that that sinner over there who does things that I don't like is no different than me. No different than me. And in the same situation, with the same family background, with the same culture, I might be doing exactly what that person is doing. Uh, I'm, you know, I have relatives in Israel. I'm very concerned about this. I have to remind myself in the midst of my anger uh, that uh, if I'd been born in Gaza, if I'd been born a Muslim, if I'd been born in poverty, if I'd been born the way those people are born, I'd probably be shooting Israeli soldiers today. <laughs> And so I'm no better than they are. And that's just the way it is. Okay? Uh, so to, I, I say this as a pastor, and I've done a lot of counseling over the years. People are like onions. You think you know them, but that's just one layer. Just one layer. But if you get down far enough, no matter how much you didn't like this person at the beginning, you will love them at the end because you will see how they became who they are. And when you see how a person became who they are, you're able to love them. Because you realize, hey, they're just, I'm messed up just like they're messed up. We just got messed up in different ways. <laughs> All right. Reflections on Nebuchadnezzar's repentance. He recognized the Lord God Most High. He recognized who was in charge of the universe, and it wasn't him. Okay? Two, he praised and honored the Most High. I have trouble with praise, but praising God flows from knowing who He is and really believing He is who He is, because if He is who He is, then He's worthy of our praise and honor, right? His mind was restored. Once again, His mind was restored. That is, He was able to see the world the way it really is and the, His proper place in the world, okay? And He no longer was of the view that I'm the God Most High, I'm just Nebuchadnezzar the king, who happens to have a really important job, who happens to have a lot of good stuff like chariots and armor, uh, but that's I'm just a creature, like every other creature, and his kingdom was restored. Okay, now, I want to go back, because I told you, to understand this book, you have to understand where it's headed, okay? The book, in the end, is about Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay, in the end, that's who the book is about. Because when they edited the book or put the book in its final form, uh, they had this evil Greek monarch that they were dealing with. Okay? And so I want to tell you a little bit about him because it's important to understand this passage. Epiphanes, which means manifestation of God, is also related uh, in etymology, that is, it sounds like, Epiphanes, which in Greek means madman. So Antiochus Epiphanes used to go around talking about himself as Antiochus, the revelation of God, and the people used to call him a madman, okay? A fool and a madman. So he is a symbol. He's going to become the symbol of the Antichrist, by the way, but he's also the symbol of a person filled with pride, and because he's filled with pride, is really just a madman. Remember that statue that he put in the temple in Jerusalem? That was the stupidest thing a ruler could possibly do. It was bound to cause a revolution. And when we're filled with pride, actually we do stupid stuff, don't we? Okay? And so that statue, that gold statue is not a symbol of his power and his might. It's a symbol of his stupidity. And the authors of this knew that, by the way. And we know, we don't know, by the way, this gets to the end of the story today, we don't know if... Antiochus, if Nebuchadnezzar really ever repented permanently, he kind of disappears from history. Uh, we, he was a great king. Uh, we know he ended his rule after many, many years of being a ruler. Um, we don't know if he became more like Cyrus, a, a person who actually secretly admired the God of Israel. We don't know that. Um, but we do know that Antiochus never repented. Okay, we do know that. That we know from history. And so there's a contrast here between the king who repents and his wisdom is restored and a king we will meet in, chapter, in later chapters who never repents and who just continues to be a fool until he's finally defeated in battle. By the way, he comes to a bad end. 
in case you're wondering how the life of Antiochus comes out. Well, now I want to go back to the tree. Now, this is a testimony that being born with the show that your wife chose and surfing the internet on your iPad can be valuable. <laughs> because one day this week, Kathy chose a movie. It was a chick flick. Uh, and I couldn't really get into it. And so I was surfing the internet. And I was surfing about our lesson this week. And something came to my mind as I was surfing the internet that explains the tree. Why a tree? Why not another statue? We've already had two of those. Why the tree? Can it regenerate? That's a good, good point. Well, I found out in my studies that the tree of life is a universal ancient symbol. On this side, this is a picture of the tree of life as it's sometimes portrayed from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs over and over again says, wisdom will be to you a tree of life. If you, if you seek wisdom, you will receive blessing after blessing. You'll know how to act in bad circumstances. You'll know how to control your tongue. You'll know how to invest your money. You'll know how to react to bad kings. If you just study me, you will be filled with an eternal form of life and a blessing. Okay? Now, over and over again, Proverbs has other warnings, like pride preceded the fall, okay, which we studied today. On this side happens to be another tree of life, because it turns out <clears throat> that the tree of life is in North mytho Norse mythology, and I didn't put the Norse one up there, but there's a Norse tree of life, uh, and this one happens to be a Mesopotamian tree of life one that would have been familiar to Nebuchadnezzar and to his people and to the people of the Middle East in the day Daniel was written. And so I thought to myself, I'm not sure I'm right, but I think this is true. You see, part of what the authors of Daniel are trying to tell us is when we're filled with pride, we become foolish and we chop down that tree of life. And what's left isn't a tree of life. It's death. And so a Middle Easterner reading Daniel for the first time wouldn't read it like we read it. It's a tree. It's a tree with birds. It's a tree. They read it as this is the tree of blessing to which rulers are put in place in order to promote for their subjects. And the pride of Nebuchadnezzar has caused him not to do that, and so God decided to cut down the tree of life for Nebuchadnezzar. I believe any ancient person in almost any ancient culture would have got that message, that the tree is the tree of wisdom, the tree of blessing, the tree of fullness, the tree of blessing, and Nebuchadnezzar, by his pride, cut down his own tree. I, I, I believe that's in the text. Like I said, I don't think it's primary. Some final words of wisdom then that I take from this. First of all, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and fools despise wisdom and knowledge. That applied to Nebuchadnezzar. My, uh, one of my favorite ones, because I read it every month, read it today, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. With pride comes disgrace. It's kind of disgraceful, don't you think, to be naked wandering around the wilderness when you, once you were a king. With Nebuchadnezzar's pride came disgrace. With our pride comes disgrace. Garland might, might know this, uh, this story, but one of my most tragic stories about America has to do with the Second Gulf War. Uh, it's a story of two CIA agents who were sitting in a... Um, bar in Baghdad. It just so happens there was a reporter, unfortunately, sitting at the next table. And one of them said, you know, we just aren't as good as we used to be. It's true. <laughs> I went to the World War, Museum, World War II Museum this week, and guess what? We're not as good as we used to be. <laughs> We're not as good as we used to be. And <clears throat> the key is to repent and become as good as you used to be. That's not about, it's about the key 
is before there's a judgment, remember Nebuchadnezzar is told right at the beginning, if you repent, this isn't going to happen to you, okay? So the key is not the judgment, it's the repentance. It's true of all of life. Finally, and this applies to Nebuchadnezzar, a poor but wise youth is better than an old and foolish king who is no longer willing to give to take good advice. Did Daniel give good advice to Nebuchadnezzar? Did Nebuchadnezzar take that good advice? So that poor slave who had wisdom was better than this old rich king who was no longer willing to take good advice. That applies to us too. You know, I'm now an old king, an old Presbyterian pastor, uh, and uh, I have to remind myself sometimes that I'm old, and I have my, I'm set in my ways, and all of my ways aren't good, and that therefore sometimes I have to look at the next generation whose ways I criticize and say, well, maybe I should take some good advice. Maybe I'm not as smart as I think I am. That applies to all of us. Last word. So, here's how it ends. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. Remember, he's the king of the empire. He now knows there's another king, the king of heaven. Okay. For all of his works are right and all of his ways are just. In other words, it was just for me to become a madman and suffer for seven years. And, his, and those who walk in pride, I, Nebuchadnezzar, now know he is able to humble. This is a word to all of us that Nebuchadnezzar has. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the king of heaven and honor him for his works are right, even when it's a judgment on me, which I've experienced, uh, and his ways are just, even though when I don't understand him. And those who walk in pride, however invincible they may seem to us, he can do it. He can humble them. So if we're concerned about our country, if you're concerned about oligarchs in our country or oligarchs in whoever you're concerned about, just remember they are not more powerful than the king of heaven. He is able to bring down anyone. So... To give you three little takeaways from this week's lesson, first of all, the natural justice of God. Those who are filled with pride will receive a judgment. This is part of the way God built the universe. I have four children, and I'm a prideful person, and I have watched four children make mistakes because they thought they were smarter than I was. Which they are, as a matter of fact. But the fact is, that doesn't really matter if you're filled with pride. There's a natural consequence to our foolishness. That's why we should always try to be wise, because there are consequences to foolishness. Secondly, the value of humility. Humility is the most important virtue we can have because humility is what allows us to listen to other people. It's what allows us to listen to advice. It's what allows us to listen to conflicting opinions and form a good judgment. It's what allows us to discover something we didn't know before. It's when we don't think we know everything there is to know about whatever it is we're thinking about that we can learn. Humility is the root of all virtues. It is the root of everything. So working on our humility is always a good thing. That's very hard for me. And the reverse is just the danger of pride. This whole parable is about the danger of pride. Uh, that those who are filled with pride eventually bring a judgment upon themselves. Now, I don't know if you can look back on your life and think that's true, but I can certainly look back on my life and know that it's true. Uh, because I have been filled with pride and I have brought the judgment upon myself in the past. So that's the lesson. Any questions? We have less than two minutes. Well, thank you. You know, I didn't like getting, being given this lesson by Tom, and I was so thankful as the week went by that I was given this lesson because I think there's a lot more in this simple story than I thought was there. It's really not one of the ones that chapters that people think is the most important, but I think it's very important. Is there two in the um, No, no. Uh, so 
Nebuchadnezzar is not the real name of Nebuchadnezzar. It's our name. His father and he shared a name, and I can't remember what it is. But um, there's one Nebuchadnezzar. I was the History Channel, mm -hmm. the, the History Channel, and um, of course it had to do with Iraq, and it had to do with the fall with showing um, his rebuild of the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. And it mentioned two Nebuchadnezzar. This was Nebuchadnezzar the second. The second, that's right. He's the second. His okay. father is the first. Okay. And his father okay. actually is the general that started it all and okay. built a lot of it. Okay. By the way, if you don't think pride preceded the fall, when... Saddam Hussein rebuilt ancient Baghdad. On every brick, he put Saddam Hussein, That's president right. of Baghdad. Uh, That's right. That's Iraq. right. Because he saw it on, he had seen that that's what Nebuchadnezzar did, right? Yeah. yeah. So pride proceeded the fall, right? All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this class. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this chapter. We thank you for this book of Daniel that has so much to teach us, not just for our government and not just for eschatology, but also for just exactly how we should conduct our day-to-day -day lives. Uh, please uh, watch over us this week, watch over our country, watch over our children and loved ones as we uh, go through this week and allow us to enjoy uh, what appears to be a beautiful Sunday. In Jesus' name we pray it, amen.